what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So the first time you likely heard of Pam Greer, like when she really broke out as an actor, she was playing this vigilante in this movie from 1973 called Coffee. And if you looked at the movie poster back then, I mean, if you Google it now, you'll see her staring down the camera. And right next to her is this really famous movie tagline. I'll read it for you. The baddest one chick hit squad that ever hit town. Pretty good, right? And, and over kind of came true. Over the next few decades, Pam Greer did become one of the baddest and most memorable action stars to ever hit Hollywood. I want justice for all of them whose lives are bought and sold so that a few big shots can climb up on their backs. Sister, I think what you're asking for is revenge. Have no fear. Pam Greer is here as Foxy. I don't, I don't know whose voice that is, but I, I really want to find out. Thanks to films like Foxy Brown and Sheba Baby, Pam became known as the queen of classic 70s blaxploitation movies. She has a lot to say about that term, blaxploitation. She'll, she'll tell you about that. But yeah, Quentin Tarantino called her Hollywood's first female action hero. He wrote the screenplay for Jackie Brown with her in mind. She has a great story about that, too. This month, the Toronto Black Film Festival is honoring all that barrier breaking by awarding Pam Greer with a Career Achievement Award. It honors the five decades she spent representing and breaking new ground for black women in movies and TV. And what an honor it was that Pam Greer stopped by our studio when she was in town to accept the award. Let me just give you a heads up. She's really fun. Uh, I didn't really even need to ask my first question to her. As soon as she sat down, we turned the microphones on. She started telling you about moving from Colorado to L.A. when she was 18 with zero acting experience. She hopped right into the story of how she got cast in her first film. Here's Pam Greer. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Thank you for your invitation. Congratulations. Thank you. How's that feel? Well, I would say I'm tired, but I'm not. When I when you speak of coffee, everyone wants to know how did I get there. I started with the Roger Corman, you know, women in prison films, and what I brought to the work was I just wanted to get money work for my university to get into UCLA Film School. Right. It was daunting because they thought I was edgy, original. I looked like a a younger version of Angela Davis without the gun, but a fro and Timberland boots and Levi 501's plant, you know, flannel shirt. But that's what we wore. We were radicals on, on the, the campuses. And um, one of my agents said, you know, Pam, there's a movie. You're perfect for it. You haven't been groomed. You're raw. You're edgy. Let's go down there. I said, look, I just need tuition. I just, and I'm already working three jobs. So what can I do? How can I... I don't want to be fired. I don't know anything about being an actor. I was at a theatrical agency, and I didn't get to look at scripts. I knew nothing about what they did. They always wanted me to lie to their clients and tell them I'm not here. And I said, I'm not lying. 
And they hated that because I'm from Colorado, Wyoming. We just don't lie. And I said, well, as long as it gets me tuition, that's all I want. I don't want anything else. And so I walked in and he said, you're perfect. You're raw. You don't look like everyone else. Yeah. You, you, you bring an edge to what we need to step up. We've already done these type of films, women with wet T-shirts in the jungle in prison. I said, you have to, I can't leave my three jobs. You have to call my mama and talk to her. He said, what's your number? He called her. I was in. <laughs> That's how we deal. That's how, from when you're from Wyoming and yeah. Colorado, there's, yeah. a, there's a reality to it. And that I cannot, you know, I, I've driven, I've saved every dime, $33 and a bucket of chicken to try to get into UCLA. And it was hard. I was living in a garage. Why did you want to go to LA in the first place? Like when you're growing up in Colorado and Wyoming, why did There's only four film schools in the country at that time. Yeah. 1968. Yeah. Uh, UCLA, USC, Northwestern, and NYU. That was it. And you wanted to go to film school. It, well, I wanted to stay, sleep in a warm state. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was correcting papers. I was riding my bike in the snow because it was a women's independent movement. Gloria Steinem was heralding the independent, get your education, don't be validated by marriage. You know, there are so many things happening, exploding civil rights, you know, one at the time. And then the women's movement broke out. Now we talk at another group of women on burning their bras on the campus, yeah, talking about getting their education, getting married later, don't be validated by marriage or all these various subcultures and religions and women were coming trying to, you know, find themselves. You're bored in the kitchen cooking fried chicken all the time and Mm -hmm. having babies. Mm -hmm. So that campus was a microcosm of the world, women of the world. And I felt a part of it. I said, how can I? How can I get there? It's been, it's missing from, from film. It's missing from books. It's just, it's just like women were missing. MIA. And I have a, a rural and military and urban background. And I said, okay, if I can bring what I've learned to filmmaking, will they accept me? Because I'm, I'm not pretty. I'm not, I don't have that, that beauty thing going on. Mm-hmm. And will they accept someone who is not? So mm-hmm. you have to build your audience. You have to prepare society to, to accept a woman doing martial arts, mm-hmm. fly fishing, mm-hmm. driving the boat, the mm-hmm. tractor, doing things that were male-oriented. Mm-hmm. You have to prepare them to watch women, you know, and, and of course, I didn't have a stunt bra. Yeah. But, but here's, what I'm, here's what I find interesting about that whole thing. Like, you, you, you told me how you ended up starting to get in these roles, and then you told me a little bit about how you ended up going, why you wanted to go to film school. In, in the first place. But when you give cast from films like Coffee and, and, and Foxy Brown, you're like you're saying, you're paying, playing these tough women, tough. Without th- a stunt double. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. How much guidance were you getting on set when it came to these stunts and all this hard stuff you had to do? I didn't get guidance until Foxy Brown. Coffee, I had more injuries, broken bones, sprains, everything, doing what I needed to do. Because in man-to-man combat, Martial arts was internal kung fu or external karate and jujitsu, other martial arts, driving a car, concussion, flying off something. What do you want with me? My name's Coffin. LaBelle Coffin is my little sister. So go and take the shot. I don't even remember your little sister. No. You get hurt. And I, many times, I, I will pay for it, trust me, yeah. <laughs> uh, in my life. But um, I had guidance, like in the Philippines, there was a little tiny guy with a carpet on his head. It looked like a fro. I'm yeah. like, that's my stunt double? Yeah. He had to be like four <laughs> feet. And when he walked over covered in chocolate makeup, I said, 
where you think you're going? <laughs> Come sabo kayo yourself. And I said, I have to do it myself now. I hear you were the person in that movie who decided to put the razor blades in the afro. Is that right? Yes. The gangs in a lot of the towns and cities, girls' gangs, when they wanted to fight, they would put razor blades in their fro. So when you went to grab their hair, like women do, yeah, um, you cut your hands and you would, you know, bleed. And it was hurt. It was single edge, by the way. Yeah. And I used it also in Fort Apache, the Bronx. The single razor in the mouth, where no. I yes, where I kill, where I cut the the neck of someone who came to service for me to service in Fort Apache, the Bronx, and I was supposed to kill him. Yeah. And they said, well, how, what would you have? What would you do? You know, you don't have a gun. You don't have a knife. You know, it'll be take away the... the, the so, you know, I'm, uh, it's eroticism. I'm luring him in like a spy. Hello, lover. You want to go out? And uh, when he goes to kiss me, we're necking. Nobody can do it like I can. That's when I pushed the razor blade out of my, my mouth and my teeth and cut his throat. Oh, my Lord. Ah! I know. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Stop. I know. You, you don't enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> You're enjoying it way too much. But that's what the uh, street urchins, street fighters yep. used. Well, it's it's funny to talk to you about sort of this all in retrospect. Like you to tell me the story about how, you know, how the the... the the women's movement really inspired you about how you were doing, you know, these 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 um, stunts without any stunt double. How you were getting how getting hurt, you know. I think now you're being seen um, in retrospect as a really really important figure in in film. And you were doing something as a black woman on screen that no one had ever seen before, being this unapologetic action hero. Were you aware of that at the time that what you were doing what you were doing was kind of groundbreaking? No, not at all. I just thought everyone did it. And then when I found out, no, you crazy and we not. So I went, oh, my God. What do you mean? <laughs> I lived in such a great family where the women were equals. And many of the women in Wyoming, my great-great-grandmother had a sugar beet farm, a 200-acre sugar beet farm, and a hotel for the blacks and Chinese that worked on the railroad. And the women, whatever it took to keep the family home, farm, homestead going, they did. So I wanted to bring that independence to film and say, you're not, you're not being a man. You're being the best woman that you can be. You're not taking a man's job. Right. You, and you were able to pull inspiration from these people, I had too. to do it. Yeah. But it, like I said, you have to develop your audience. You have to let them see women do things that are you know, traditionally a man's job yeah. as opposed to waiting for the house to fall down. Yeah. Um, as much as you want to talk about this, you know, in, in your memoir, you really, and you mentioned this just a minute ago, you like you said, hey, you know, I, I had been through some things when I was growing up. In your memoir, you're really open about being a survivor of, of sexual assault. What I'm curious about is like when you're starring in these films, which feature a lot of sexual violence, that they like, you talk about how they let you flip the script on what you had experienced. Can you talk to me more about that, about making the movie, these movies and what they might have done for you? Well, it brought authenticity. A lot of the directors said, you've been here before, haven't you? Mm, duh, yeah. But I wanted to establish for me that a woman's body is not in everyone's possession, that it's not okay. And one of the movies that just absolutely validated what I was trying to do was Thelma and Louise, the parking lot scene. 
You let her go. You are. I'm gonna splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. All right, hey, 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 just calm down. We're just having a little fun. When a woman's crying like that, she isn't having any fun. And it be entertainment and a lesson. This is who you're going to fool with. She's going to lure you in, and she's going to change the script and show you what it's like. But, but I, I get it in terms of, like, society and, and, like, what was happening in the world at that time and what you went through and sort of what the world was when you were coming up. It was tough. But, it was a man's world. James Brown sang about that. But, like, when you— That's his soul. Uh, uh, when, when you are in these movies and there is— Forgive me. Trapping, entrapment. There is violence against you in these movies. Uh, mm-hmm. There is... Which is fair. How do I build empathy from the audience if there isn't violence against my character? How do I get them to like me and, and be on my side and see all these things that are going to happen to me? But then you get to fight back in these movies. Well, that was the the intention, is to show you can fight back. You have to fight back. It's okay. Many societies, women could have fought back, but they didn't. In a modern society, for women to be equal, Mm. we have to fight back in the best feminine way possible. It must have been meaningful for you to be able to do that in front of a camera. Well, it was, and often the camera angles didn't, I think, catch what I would be doing in the small lens, prepare the razor in the mouth, or how with coffee... If I'm locked in a, a room, I find a, a, a bobby pin to carve a, a weapon. It, so it was basically not having a weapon, using my will, using my creativity to get out of a situation. I just didn't walk around with a gun mm-hmm. all the time. You mm-hmm. know, a gun, which I would take the gun mm-hmm. from the person that I was going after. Yeah. I was finding a way, whether it's, it's psychology, my skill, my survival instinct. How do I get out of this situation without weaponry? Now you're a cop. Now why don't you just arrest them? It's not that simple, copy. The law can't do that. You bet it can't. And I know why it can't too. Because the law is in for a piece of the action. I'm Tom Power. That is the world's first female action hero, Pam Greer. Long before Angelina Jolie, long before Lupita Nyong'o, long before any of them, Pam Greer was doing her own stunts in low-budget 70s action movies, chasing bad guys, getting vigilante justice for her family or community or for herself. These particular movies, if you're not uh, as familiar, they're known as blaxploitation films. That's probably a term you've heard at some point. They're sensational, a little campy. A lot of violence and nudity. These movies had a huge influence on later films like Austin Powers and and Kill Bill. But there's also been a lot of debate around these films, whether they were empowering or whether they were perpetuating stereotypes. So Pam Greer gets called the queen of blaxploitation movies. It was really interesting to hear what she thinks of the whole thing. Take a listen. How do you feel about that these films get called blaxploitation films? It wasn't black exploitation for the first nine movies that were done by black males. Not until I stepped into a man's shoes. And what changed then? I was now in a man's position to take care of myself. Oh, we can't take care of a woman. Also, they wanted women, a woman, not to teach the other women. And all the movies start being like mine because we were staying in the theaters too long. Coffee knocked out James Bond. 
out of first place. So by calling it black exploitation, it was a, it was it was it diminished it a little bit. It, or? It, it it was basically like a conspiracy. But these keep, aren't real movies. These aren't real stories. They, they, they are, and they were because women don't sweep the the mess and the dirt underneath the rugs like men do. They're out doing you know undercover, under table, pale and stuff like that, selling out the communities. Coffee was based on my mom. She was a nurse, and she stood up to all the gangsters in the neighborhood. Yeah. She wasn't going to have it. And and basically, she was already profiled, oh, who do you think you are? Yeah. You know, you're, we're going to take you out. This is our business. We're going to play poker. We're going to cheat. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Yeah. Okay. All right. But we have to take care of the children. We have to do so many things. We don't have the guns. You have the guns. You're more prepared than we are. So my, I come from a, a long line of skillet-throwing women. I'm going to hit you upside the head with the skillet, okay? <laughs> I may not have a gun, but you go, that skillet's going to come around the counter like a boomerang and hit you in the head. I got you. I got you. But when they call them, what it sounds like to me that you're saying is when you call them black exploitation films, you're you're taking the taking, power out of them a little you're bit. You're taking the power from the audience saying, it's negative, don't go see it, so now we we can put other movies in the theater. So basically, it was all a monetary conspiracy. I got you. I got you. Because there's no sense to it. When we're try- fighting crime and it's exploitation, who's exploited? You become this cult icon for these kind of movies, these action movies. What happens to you when you start searching for roles outside of those films? They were fantastic. I got Sheba Baby. Yeah. Pam Greer, that foxy brown coffee gal, is... Sheba, baby. I'm going to take a shower. I got to ride the jet ski, Kawasaki. And the first thing they said was, can she swim? I was a scuba diver. Mm. I got on, it didn't even get wet. I didn't Mm. even fall in. Mm. But I wanted to show women that, yes, you can ride a jet ski. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you can be a detective. I tell girls today, you know, instead of buying shoes and purses, go out and buy the used jet ski. Buy a SUV, yeah. go to the lake, and invite the boys, invite the men to come out. Yeah. Not always them doing it and then picking and choosing the beautiful women to have with them by the lake, but they do it. Hold on. So, But what I'm curious about is, like, why do I feel like there was a, a, a run after these films that it was – that the – that the films weren't coming your way, the roles weren't coming your way. Well, you've matured. You've already seen them. But like, the black audience doesn't want to, you know, I can't have them come and see a redundant film over and over and over again, take their money and take their time. We've got to move on to something that are the narratives that are uncovered. And, and were you getting offers? Were you Absolutely. Getting, yeah. Absolutely. I went right from them to uh, Fort Apache, the Bronx uh-huh. with Paul Newman. Uh-huh. I got some fine for New York's finest. Well, uh, we're on the job. I'm on my J-O-B, too, just like you. My agent, John Gaines, wanted to take me to mainstream because mainstream was now not segregating the theaters and the communities. They are sitting together in the theaters. And I started the multiplex theater Mm -hmm. because the theaters, my films would stay there for like months. Yeah, People go back and back and back. I know the owners, they said, Pammy, you upset a lot of people. Yeah, because your movies play here too long. Yeah, so you're gonna have you know, and I could see it coming. But I said, don't worry, I don't want to be repetitive. You can't, I can't keep being redundant with the black audience. I have to give them something that is not discovered. Yeah, that you know, while I have their attention and their money and their time, what can I teach them? What can I show them? And and I started. It got out. The word got out. And next thing you know, I'm being 
offered a lot of films that are called mainstream, yeah. where the audience is, well, now we have a, a multiplex where it can have a child's movie, a Korean movie, a martial art movie. I was seeing Jackie Chan, um, a Ride with White Hair, and The Drunken Master 1 and 2. Yeah. I was seeing his movies, and then you'd have a Western, then you'd have a French film. You'd have five different types of films under one building. And so that's what started the multi-film complex, so we could have a variety of films. Right. And basically, that was an evolution of there's more stories. Right. Let's look for them. Let Let me skip ahead to the 90s here, which is um, – I want to talk about Quentin Tarantino a little bit. So he writes you and tells you he's a big fan. He's writing a script just for you. Can you tell me that story? Something about like uh, this Jackie Brown script in the post office. Do you know what story I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. Can you tell me? Yeah, he's going to kill me. <laughs> um, I am in traffic with a producer. And and so he says, you know, word word out is that Quentin Tarantino, you know who it is? I said, yeah, Reservoir Dogs. He mentioned Foxy Brown in the car. And he did, you know, Pulp Fiction. And he said, well, word is it that he's writing a movie for you. This white dude is writing a movie for me. Really? You're just trying to get it in my pants, aren't you? you know, so. uh, I have on a bra this week. I know it's braless Saturday, but... So he says, no, and that's him up there. And I'm saying, get out of here. That's, that's, that's Quentin Tarantino. Where? In this traffic, we're going over a canyon, and he's outside talking to somebody in a car. Yeah. And it looked like he was macking, but I sure. go there. Okay. And I'm saying, that's, that's the, he said, yes, yeah, him. So he says, hey, Quentin, come here, come here. And he looks up. And I recognize his features, and I'm like, that is him in a tank top and some running shorts and the gazillionaire, successful. And he comes over to the guy, and he says, hey, man, hey, how you doing, man? They do the brother man stuff. And so he says, hey, Quinn, Pam Greer. Quinn looks over. He runs around the front of the car, and he's just like exploding in chatter. And I'm like, he says, I'm running in my... I said, okay, slow down. You're writing a movie for me? Okay, you only write for dudes. He says, yeah, it's based on the Elmore Leonard, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm going to send it to you. I'm finished it. I'm sending it to you, and we're going to rehearse, and we're going to be 10 weeks. And he's like, I heard that many times, trying to get me, you know, like, no. So I said, okay. And I said, you need my GC? I'll find it. Sure you will. And he did. And... um the envelope shows up, and it's due forty four cents. How does this millionaire have sent me something that's due forty four cents? And they're not giving it to me until I put the forty four cents in the mail, and and I get it, and they they leave the package, and I'm like, hush. Oh, and I read it, and they're on the cover it says Jackie Brown. It took me like a day to read it. You were nervous about it. I wasn't nervous. Okay, you I were, was fearful. Yeah. Because it's going to be a piece of work that is going to be so demanding. And can I do it? But yeah. I had done theater for four years. Yeah. And I thought maybe he knew I had done Frank and Johnny the Claire DeLune, uh, Fool for Love for Sam Shepard. Maybe I'd done, you know, the, the, the Negro Playhouse. Maybe he had heard that I had done four years of nothing but theater because I wanted to do theater because am I a, a celebrity? Or am I an actor? Mm. And I did four years of nothing but theater, the boards, just to get, you know, find my groove. Yeah, I understand. And I thought that he'd heard about that. Yeah. 
And I opened it, and it was Jackie Brown. Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there just for a moment. I'm Tom Power. This is part one of my conversation with Pam Greer. A little bit of a cliffhanger, kind of like a Pam Greer film. So what you heard just then was how Pam became the queen of black exploitation films. How she actually feels about this term. But coming up, we're gonna follow that story. How Quentin Tarantino ran into Pam Greer with a script he had written with her in mind that ended up becoming one of the most acclaimed movies of the 90s, Jackie Brown. That's coming up after this. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Take a listen to this. I'm a long time woman. And I'm serving my time. I've been locked away so You're in the middle of my conversation with that voice right there, Pam Greer. That's Pam Greer singing on the soundtrack to her film, Jackie Brown. Quentin Tarantino wrote that movie specifically with Pam Greer in mind. I mean, he was a really big Pam Greer fan, big fan of the low-budget exploitation movies she did in the 70s in the first part of our conversation. You would have heard Pam talk about how she feels about the term exploitation. But he knew how important she was as, like, film's first female action hero. So when Quentin won the Oscar for Pulp Fiction in 95, he knew exactly what he wanted to do next. He wanted to make Jackie Brown as kind of a tribute to Pam Greer. Now, all of this was a little shocking to Pam. I mean, Quentin was sort of the hottest director in the world at that moment. This would be her first big mainstream role in Hollywood. Anyway, we'll, we'll pick up the story from there. I didn't think it was for me. I thought it, I was the the melody character, the junkie character, mm-hmm. um, the, the the Fonda. You know, I I couldn't believe it. And he's, so there was a note in it. When you read this at the end of it, call me and tell me what you think. If you like it, why well, didn't I didn't see the note? And he was waiting like three weeks. Hysterical. Maybe she doesn't like it. Maybe she just threw it in the trash. I haven't heard from her. He was having anxiety because I hadn't responded. Mm. And so he was about to, what am I going to do? I don't have any other movies. I really needed her, you know, her opinion. (laughs) He was freaking out. So split screen, he's freaking out. Split screen, I'm like, I haven't heard from him. And then I see the note and I go, I should have called him three weeks ago. I love it. So I called him and he got so excited and he said, I'm so glad. What do you think? And I said, I'm I'm honored. This is fun. He says, and you don't need a gun and you don't need a, you know, Quentin Tarantino. And I said, 
I said, it's it's brilliant. He said, if you don't rehearse, you can't be in it. I only work with actors that rehearse. I said, well, I do rehearse. I just did four plays for the yeah. last four years. And the boards, and uh, I, I can't wait. I said, uh, whatever you need, you know, from me. And he says, I just want you to be you. We're going to have Robert De Niro. We're going to have Samuel Jackson. We're going to have Bridget Fonda. We're going to have Robert Forrest. You heard of Robert Forrest. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm envisioning all of these people. I said, what's your budget? You, you can afford all these people? You know, he said, well, they're going to, you know, discount it. You know, give, they're going to cut me some slack. And now I have to do it because these incredible artists are coming aboard to work with me yeah. at a discount. At a discount. They're taking a cut on their No, grade. I'm going to have to cook. Yeah. I'm going to have to cook lunch <laughs> for these people every day. How much, what, what, where am I going to, you know, because I've always had to add multi-jobs anyway. Yeah. And, um, you know, my favorite Robert De Niro film was Raging Bull. Yeah. You know, um, as a filmmaker, director, what I want to do. And then Samuel Jackson from the Spike Lee, you know, uh, high school. And, and just, I just didn't know. All I could say is, he says, I know you can do it. Matter of fact, you're the only one because you have, I watched your movies, Pam, and there's a secret to how you make your movies. Mm. And that's what works with mine. And if you, when you ever do it, and that, that has certain things with pop culture. And so from then on, that's been how I prepare myself and how I prepare myself for my future as a writer and a director. It's it's a rare opportunity. We only got a minute left before they got to take you out of here. But it's a rare opportunity to get you in here and, and to get a chance to talk to you. Um, but given that we're 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 talking about this because of this award you're getting from the I'll Toronto be back. Black Film Festival. Thank you. I'll be back. When this award you're getting from the Toronto Black Film Festival, the Career Achievement Award. When you look at movies today, I mean, when you were starting out, there weren't hardly any women. There certainly hardly weren't any black women. Not in, even an executive. In, 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 but in, in action movies at mm-hmm. that time. And now, I mean, you got Lupita Nyong'o in, in the Black Panther franchise and Viola Davis in the, in the Woman Scarlett King. Scarlett Johansson, but when Julie you, Theron. Do you, do you see your influence? Um, yes, and they let me know it. <laughs> I said, okay, I, I didn't have a sport bra. You guys do, so you're way advanced. You're going to be able to make it look really, really good. But don't get hurt. It's just a film. It's just a movie. Be authentic. Find your way through it. And if there's things that you can't visit, such as an attack or a rape or certain things, they can shoot around that. Yeah. Don't re-traumatize yourself. Yeah. Okay, it's just a film, and you can, and that can happen. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it, and I've people have consulted me. Actors have consulted me about how to approach certain things that are traumatic yeah. and it may affect their work. Yeah. And a lot of actors, you know, if I look at my age and 10 years younger, a lot of people aren't working because yeah. they've been injured or they have health issues mm-hmm. or they just can't, you know, be around firearms. Yeah. And that's real. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad these people, I'm glad you're getting your due. I'm glad these people tell you what, what your work meant to them. And Oh, they do. I, I'm... They call me. We stay in touch. A lot of them are my my daughters, mm-hmm. my sons, mm-hmm. friends. What did you do? What do you think? And I said, Well, what do you think? How do you feel about it? What can you show? What 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 scares you, frightens you the most, and challenges you? Lovely to meet you. Thank you. That's my conversation with the legendary Pam Greer. 
She was in Toronto for the Toronto Black Film Festival, where they honored her with a Career Achievement Award. Lifetime. 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 And not the not the the, the channel. <laughs> <laughs> Lifetime. Lifetime. I mean, well deserved. If you if you go to our uh, in my Instagram at Tom Joe Power, the show is at CBCQ. One of those, you'll see the pictures uh, Pam Greer and I took right afterwards, and. You know, it's not a word I, I use very often. It was a hoot. You know, I'll say it. It was a hoot. Um, thanks, thanks so much to Pam Greer for coming in. The other conversation of today on our podcast is uh, Talia Schlanger, guest host Talia Schlanger's conversation with the actor Alexandra Billings. Right, see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.